Good morning. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. I'd like to welcome our audience here at the Walter and Betsy Stern Conference Center at Hudson Institute. Uh, our distinguished guests, of course, uh, Beth McCormick, the Director of the Defense Technology Security Administration, and I'd also like to welcome our audience at home on C-SPAN. Hudson Institute is an international policy research organization dedicated to strong American national security and strong American international leadership in partnership with our allies. And one of the most important work, parts of the work we do here at Hudson is assessing present and future threats to national security and securing our, our nation's most important military assets and advanced technologies. So um, we are delighted, and I should say honored, to have with us Beth McCormick, director of one of the most crucial agencies involved in our national defense, the Defense Technology Security Administration. Beth works at the intersection, the crucial point of uh, the intersection of technology, industrial cooperation with our allies, and national security. For those of you who don't know, the DITSA is the Pentagon's watchtower for overseeing how and when our friends and allies get access to the best defense technologies we develop here at home, and also for assuring that those who are not exactly our friends don't get access to the same technologies. This is obviously a very critical issue in today's globalized defense marketplace. We at Hudson have done do numerous conferences overseas uh, every year. In the last couple of months, we've had conferences in Bangalore, and or workshops in Bangalore, uh, Tokyo, and Brussels. And this issue of uh, defense cooperation, uh, defense partnership, sharing defense technologies, and preventing these technologies from getting into the hands of uh, our enemies uh, has come up and it's, been a, and it's been a real focus. Obviously, when you read the news headlines today, we read every day about the stealing of sensitive data and technology via the internet and by a range of persistent nation-state cyber threats and non-nation-state cyber threats. And in a world where runaway proliferation of lethal technologies is an ever-present concern, Beth McCormick will be giving us her assessment of these challenges from the point of view of someone who's been overseeing this fight on the front lines. Now, talking with Ms. McCormick about these issues and how defense security and technology transfer fit into a global U.S. strategy is our own senior fellow, Arthur Herman. Arthur is a Pulitzer Prize finalist, a New York Times bestselling author, and uh, Arthur's written numerous books. Uh, the exact number is not coming to my mind, but I guess probably somewhere okay, eight. Okay, that was, that was the number I was going to guess. Actually, the, he's written eight books, and uh, his book uh, "Freedom's Forge: How American Business Won World War II" uh, is was not only a New York Times bestseller, but it really told it tells an incredible story about uh, the role capitalism played and the auto industry played in assuring the great uh, Allied victory in World War II. So I can think of no one better prepared uh, to, to handle the Q&A, especially because Arthur is also quite concerned about technologies today, spends a lot of time analyzing as well uh, geostrategy. I can imagine no one better equipped uh, to handle this uh, Q&A. So let me turn it over to Arthur. Thank you. I want to introduce our uh, distinguished guest, uh, a brief introduction, but I want to start with a question. Who protects us? Who protects our homes, 
our nation's security? Who is it who makes sure that uh, our allies have the kinds of weapons and technology they need to defend themselves uh, in, a global, in, a, in a global world of global tensions? And who is it who uh, works to disarm those who mean to do us harm? I think for most Americans, the first answer to that question would probably be people wearing uniform in our armed services, and rightly so. But I think it's also worth pointing out that there's also a group of people, dedicated people, in uh, three agencies of our government who are working from a desk in order to ensure that those outcomes take place. These are the people who oversee our uh, defense export trade and import trade with our allies and with other countries. Uh, for those of you who don't know the, the sort of the way in which the system works, there are basically three agencies in brief who do this. Uh, the Defense Department through its Defense Technology Security Administration, uh, the State Department through the uh, Office of, uh, for Defense Trade and Regional Security, which is part of the Bureau for Political and Military Affairs, and then the Department of Commerce uh, and the Bureau for Industry and Security. Now, Beth McCormick is, I believe, unique for being someone who has actually held two of those three offices, currently as Director of the Defense Technology Security Administration, or DITSA, but also from 2010 to 2012, am I right? Uh, 2010 to 13, actually. To 13, uh, was also Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Defense, Trade, and Regional Security, overseeing the main agency there, the Directorate of Defense Trade Controls for the State Department. Two out of three ain't bad. And that's what we have here today to talk about issues of defense trade. But that's not all. Beth McCormick also served as Deputy Director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, which is the agency at the Pentagon that works uh, uh, around the clock to make sure that technologies get to our allies that are needed and when, when they're needed. Uh, and who, an agency, I think it's fair to say, uh, often sees the efforts of some of the regulatory bodies which you've headed up as being frustrating to the efforts that they want to achieve here, uh, just as many in the state, in, in the Defense Department and, and State Department overseeing these export of defense technologies often see things from different, even conflicting perspectives. So what we have with Beth McCormick is, I think, a unique participant uh, in understanding the role of defense trade, defense export, and export control in the shaping of our national security. And I know you're anxious to hear from her, and I'm anxious to hear from her as well, and so I'm going to turn the podium over to Beth McCormick. Please give her a welcome. So first off, let me start by um, apologizing um, about it being a few minutes late. We were a little confused. This is uh, We appreciate the Hudson Institute inviting us to speak today. Uh, and so, Ken, thanks for your initial comments. And, Arthur, I look forward. I can already tell with your short introductory remarks it's going to be a stimulating conversation um, because I think you just stopped short of calling me uh, that I'm an impediment to sharing of technology. But um, I think I'll later show you that I'm only a toad in the road, and so people can run over me if they, if they choose to. Um, but I, I do apologize. 
apologize because uh, there's going to be, a, I think, a later panel uh, that is actually down the street at a law firm, and so we had our little signals crossed, so I do apologize. I was actually there on time, but unfortunately not here, not here on time, so I do apologize. Um, I'm very pleased to be here this morning. I, I was listening very closely when, when Ken mentioned a little bit um, about some of the orientation and the objectives of the Hudson Institute, and I, I heard some terminology uh, that sounded very much like my own, my own vision statement for my own organization, and so I think we have an awful lot of commonality. Um, I think I just want to highlight a couple of things about my career, and then what I'd like to do is share a little bit uh, of my perspectives and what I'm going to call, actually, uh, the key pillars of defense technology security and partnerships, specifically focusing on the Asia region today. Um, but I must tell you that um, my job and as the director of the Defense Technology Security Administration um, is actually a functional responsibility with a global footprint. Uh, but I'll be interested as we talk uh, later, I can share with you a little bit about how I spend my time, uh, because I think uh, I'm spending a lot more time uh, working issues with uh, countries in the Asia-Pacific region and also with countries in the Middle East. So that's where I spend a predominant of my time. It's not to suggest that my partners and allies in Europe are not important. It's just where I have to decide to spend my own personal bandwidth. So just to mention, I've, I'm coming, I, I've been uh, too long working for the United States government, probably. I have 31 years of service serving our government, um, predominantly working uh, in the Department of Defense, but I took a little segue early in my career over to the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. But basically for the last, um, basically since around 2001, uh, I have been involved in issues associated with um, the sharing of technology with other countries, but at the same time balance, balancing that in terms of determining what technology um, ensures the cutting edge for the U.S. warfighter. Uh, and striking that balance sometimes is, an, is a challenge, but I try to do it as best I can. The last couple of years have been a unique experience for me because I was detailed uh, as a Department of Defense executive over to the Department of State Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Um, and I actually, not to correct you, Arthur, but I actually oversaw about 50% of the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. So I was responsible for the Directorate of Defense Trade Controls, which actually controls uh, the export of defense technology from U.S. industry uh, directly to foreign partners. And then I also oversaw the, uh, re the, the Bureau, the Directorate of uh, Regional Security and Arms Transfers, which is actually responsible for items that go under our foreign military sales process. And I would just, as a note, um, to just make sure, as Arthur did, to sort of cite us about roles and responsibilities, one of the things that's most interesting about defense trade in the United States is that defense trade is under the authorities of the Department of State, uh, so under the Title 22 authorities of the Department of State, um, because in our laws and regulations, um, defense trades and providing defense technology to other countries is an instrument of U.S. foreign policy. So in the Defense Department, while we are very much involved in, um, in making decisions about what type of technology should go to our partners, the State Department has the ultimate decision as to whether those transfers will actually occur. So I had a unique experience for four years where I served at kind of the other side of the Potomac, and I had the opportunity to see it from a State Department perspective. And personally, I think it's made me uh, better doing uh, the job that I do today. So um, as the director of DITSA, um, I am responsible for technology security policy, export controls, and I also chair what's called the National Disclosure Policy Committee, which is an interagency committee involved in the release of classified military information to foreign governments. 
And I also co-chair, along with a colleague of mine from OSD uh, Acquisition Technology and Logistics, I chair the Arms uh, Technology and Release Senior Steering Group. In fact, we just held our meeting yesterday, and this forum is the central forum we've established in the Department of Defense uh, under direction from the Deputy Secretary to basically make sure that we are looking at priority transfers of technology uh, to foreign partners. Now, the motto of my organization um, is kind of an interesting one, and uh, I've just having been back there now for a year, having been there before, so I'm a little bit of a retread, I just want to mention that our motto is uh, called Ensuring the Edge. But today what I want to do is I want to speak with you, as I indicated, with a specific emphasis uh, on Asia-Pacific and implementing the strategy that I call Key Pillars of Defense Technology Security and Partnerships in Asia. And that effort, simply put, is strengthening existing alliances and forging new partnerships in relation to our ability to share more information, technology, and defense capability. We do this while protecting our warfighters' advanced technological advantage and enabling partnership capacity for deterrence and maintaining peace, stability, and security in the Asia-Pacific region. Earlier this year, I spoke at two significant defense trade events in Asia, first the Singapore Air Show, and then a Defense Technology Security Conference in Seoul, Korea. These two events represented the two ends of the spectrum of our critical defense technology relationships with key partners in Southeast and Northeast Asia. While Singapore is by no means an emerging technology sharing and technology security partner in Asia, it does represent a focal point in the emerging key area of Southeast Asia in our Asia, in our Asia rebalance efforts. Southeast Asia is a critical gateway between the Indian and Pacific Oceans, which requires significant aware awareness through the domains of air, sea, space, and cyber, where intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance technologies are vital force multipliers. In Northeast Asia, the Republic of Korea represents a critical pillar in our longstanding regional security commitment. While in Korea, I spoke on the 64th anniversary of the North Korean attack on the Republic of Korea, which was harbinger of our ever-maturing alliance with the Republic of Korea. This alliance has blossomed from battlefield comrades into a significant strategic partnership that ensures a strong defense alliance that is enabled with the most advanced technology, military systems, and equipment in support of our combined military commands and future OPCON transfer. A key factor in the Asia regional strategy is our collective defense and national security calculus that ensures U.S. defense technology transfers and associated exports are consistent with global norms of nonproliferation and are done so in, in the confidence that our advanced technology sharing comports with strong technology security and export control regimes. These are the foundational strengths of our enduring alliances and our cooperative partnerships. With that in mind, what I'd like to do is share with you today the, what I call the technology security pillars to illustrate our efforts in our own robust security policies. And I hope that these comments will elicit further discussion today during our question and answer session. So the first uh, key pillar, number one, is the capability and the intent to protect advanced technologies. So it's our expectation uh, that the recipient partner of United States Advanced Technology, Defense Technology, recipient partner of Advanced Defense Technology must have the capability and the intent to protect high defense technology articles to the equivalent security standards of the United States. So let me break down those, uh, those two terms a little bit so you understand what I'm, what I'm talking about here. So the first one is 
Capability. So capability refers to laws, regulatory authorities, and systemic and bureaucratic structures that include, but are not limited to, aspects of physical security, personnel security, cybersecurity, industrial security, and compliance practices and procedures to adequately protect shared defense technologies. The intent refers to partner government's political will and attitude regarding overall technology security posture to treat the shared U.S. technology, uh, U.S. defense technology and information as if it were their own, especially in terms of the conditions of appropriate stated end use and respect for intellectual property. Another vital element is the assessment of the recipient partner's balance of national security with its strategic trade advantage or financial gain with regard to the export of defense articles and services. So without the infrastructure capability to protect and the government intent to protect defense articles from both internal and external fence, the key pillars are less likely to succeed. The second pillar I want to discuss is technology security is a shared whole-of-government endeavor. Due to the strategic nature of defense trade activities, strong interagency coordination and approval processes are essential for all technology security and defense export initiatives. These processes should be a healthy, robust system of checks and balances with the partner government to holistically assess diverse stakeholder interests. Adequate checks and balances will ensure proper oversight of strategic issues that can pack regional and global alliances, and this is only possible through a strong interagency coordination process. And I'll just note, this is one of the areas where, again, I've had some unique experiences where I've seen quite a number of the dimensions of our interagency process. And I have to say, when I work with other countries, I try often that when we meet with them, we encourage them, uh, even if we're meeting with the Ministry of National Defense, that we encourage them to bring in, as part of their interagency process, representation from their Ministry of Foreign Affairs or their Ministry of Interior or whatever organization within their country has responsibility for export control and the protection of strategic good. It's very important. The third pillar is um, existing technology security and export control legislation. And legislation provides codified uh, statutory authorities that in turn allow government institutions to create policies, practices, and procedures necessary to implement, enable, and authorize a robust compliance system to ensure all import and export entities are following the law as prescribed. And legislation should synthesize technology transfer compliance offices with a law enforcement component to address punitive measures when necessary. In essence, legislation becomes the anchor that all government and private industry participants defer to for all export decisions. And the key pillar number four, an enduring national technology security regime requires active collaboration. While oversight should be a national government responsibility, all entities associated with the export of defense, defense articles have certain inherent technology security-related responsibilities and shared goals in pursuit of national-level strategic objectives. Such key stakeholders include industry, think tanks, defense-related trade organizations, research and development organizations, academic institutions, military services, and legislative and executive branches. Now, I believe these four basic pillars, when fully realized, will give a nation a solid foundation from which to develop a world-class technology security and export control regime. And while we do our best to have the world's leading technology security and export control system, we ourselves continue to refine it 
through our ongoing export control reform efforts. As many of you know, the U.S. Export Control Interagency has been engaged in a multi-year effort to reform our system to better reflect current geopolitical realities and the advancement of technology. This is a constantly evolving work in progress that requires a great deal of investment in government time, resources, and efforts. I also just want to focus a little bit about um, some of the specific relationships that we have in working and the collaboration we have with our partners in the Asia region, since I know that, that was a bit of a focus for today. Our collaboration in Asia partners revolves primarily around the most mature practitioners of technology security policy and export controls. Among these are Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and Korea, all signatories to the key international nonproliferation regimes, including the Wassenaar Arrangement, the Missile Technology Control Regime, the Nuclear Suppliers Group, and the Australia Group. In these arrangements, these nations represent the measure by which emerging partners in Asia should aspire in terms of expanding greater technology sharing that is commensurate with their technology security practices. Regarding Japan in particular, our relationship represents a true measure of information technology security cooperation that continues to grow with each engagement. Since the government of Japan expanded the Japan Defense Agency to a ministry in 2007, Japan has taken some very robust and expanded roles regarding its approach to defense and security issues. This is especially true regarding the defense trade impacts of its advanced technologies. To name a few notable milestones, the government of Japan has devised a national security strategy, implemented a national security council, revised its prohibition on defense technology exports, the so-called three Ps, and passed a milestone legislation called the Secrets Protection Act. As Japan moves forward to become a significant player in the defense industry arena, we have pledged to work alongside them to share some of our own lessons learned and best practices regarding the export of defense articles, as well as concerns over the export of dual-use technologies to entities and, dest and destination countries of concern. As Japan moves forward with its Secrets Protection Act implementation this month, it will ensure continued high prioritization of the on the protection of sh critical shared intelligence and technology between our two nations. So in conclusion, uh, recognizing that we need to get to that wonderful Q&A session, I just want to leave you with a couple of takeaways. In short, I want to characterize the work that I do as share what we can, protect what we must. And what I mean by this is that we always strive to retain the technological military advantage for our military combatant commanders, along with the same technological military advantage for our friends and, and partners who will fight alongside us. This means that we will collaborate and share those technologies commensurate with the partners, the partnerships that address our mutual defense and, and security strategies through robust support of our military operations through seamless interoperability. So in sum, we are prepared to share more and share more efficiently with our international partners while also expecting an equivalency of sharing those technologies. I'll just conclude by mentioning a little bit about a, a new initiative that we've started. Um, when I came back to DITSA last October, uh, having been away for about six years, uh, having run the agency previously, what I found was I found my colleagues were very much involved in having a lot of bilateral discussions with, with various partners. And with many of those partners, we had, you know, sort of long-standing bilateral dialogues. 
And those were very, very productive. But with many of those countries, I found that, boy, we didn't have an awful lot to sort of discuss other than to sort of compare notes because we were doing things so similarly, and so there weren't a lot of issues between us. So what we have done here over the last couple of months, and we've really started this initiative, is that we're doing what we call a cooperative uh, technology security program initiative. And this is where we're going out and working with other countries around the world who perhaps are still in that infancy stage about developing their own export control system or refining that. Uh, and so we're working very collaboratively with some partners. So those are the ones that we're putting our emphasis on, because uh, obviously in this era of constrained budgets, we've got to decide where we travel and, and that kind of thing. So we've put that emphasis on countries that we need to work very closely with. And I'll be more than glad to talk a little bit more about some of those countries uh, that we're working with. Many of them are countries where they are uh, having um, increased aspirations about having uh, defense exports from their industry, uh, and we think it's very important that, of course, as those uh, exports from their defense industry grow, it's very important for them to be what I call choosy sellers. You have to know who you're selling to. And I can tell you that my experience in working with these, some of these countries is, is we're finding a lot of common ground um, because, obviously, as um, our, the situation that we have today here in the United States, where obviously our defense industry um, has obviously been able to sell quite a lot of their equipment to our defense department. But, of course, as that declines, I can tell you that our own industry here in the United States is looking for increased international sales. So I feel that I'm at a very important juncture in this, in this work uh, because we have to work in partnership with U.S. industry because obviously we want to maintain the viability of that industri the defense industrial base here in the United States, obviously to ensure that we are still providing to our military, uh, military departments and to, our, to our, uh, our soldiers the best equipment possible. But we also recognize that to maintain that, they're also going to have to sell more things internationally. Uh, and obviously working and being, working closely with them up front uh, and talking to them about countries, because there would be nothing worse than us going ahead and sharing those technologies and then those technologies finding their hands into uh, the wrong hands and then being used back against our forces or those of our allies on the battlefield. Um, so let me stop with those prepared remarks, and then I'll be more than glad to entertain what I expect to be a lively Q&A session. So thank you. Well, um, as moderator, I, I get to claim the privilege of asking the first question. <laughs> uh, and there's a number of them that spring to my mind, uh, particularly with regard to the four pillars that you've outlined. Mm -hmm with regard to uh, the country that you mentioned, Japan, full disclosure, we here at Hudson are very interested in working towards increased defense trade cooperation mm -hmm. between the United States and, and, and Japan. But I'm going to ask, start with a broader question. Okay. Uh, when most people now think about protecting defense technology, sensitive technologies and, and transfers, they tend to think automatically about the Internet and the issues of protecting information and data that can be stolen through cyber theft by a range of threats, mm -hmm. a range of challenges. Uh, obviously a very important part of it, and obviously among your four pillars here, a robust cybersecurity regime would be paramount. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only real area where the threat comes, is it, in terms of stealing technologies and in terms of, in terms of dissemination of te lethal technologies that you don't want to get in the hands of the bad guys. No, it's, it, I mean, I think what, what's important, um, and uh, maybe I didn't say it as clearly as I should have, I mean, the, the, 
the threats that we face in terms of the exploitation of technology um, come from a variety of sources. Um, and so some of it is obviously through cyber, uh, and cyber obviously is something that I think uh, not only is the U.S. government very concerned about, but I think we are as, as average citizen concerned about the protection of our, of our personal information. Um, but obviously when we talk about security, it's really got to be the full range of security. So um, I have, in fact, on my staff, I have a, a, a very solid cadre of individuals who actually are – uh, security specialists. They're actually coded by job series in the Department of Defense as actually security specialists. And so when we work with countries, we work with them in thinking about the full range of security issues that they need to consider. Everything from um, the kind of individuals that they provide access to, classified information. So in some cases, we're actually helping countries to think about how do they go about, you know, sort of doing the vetting of personnel the way we do when we have security clearances. Um, we also talk to them about issues associated with physical security because obviously just there are items that can actually be where people are literally trying to steal physical items. Um, so we also look at issues associated with physical security. Um, and then just really the full range of information security. And, and again, it's also just making sure that we have proper access to documentation and the whole range. So while cyber is obviously a very significant growing threat, uh, and obviously something that the U.S. government um, is putting a lot of attention on. In fact, I must say that my colleagues in the Defense Department that are responsible for this, they're, they're very much the pioneers in this because you can imagine that the kind of information that the Department of Defense has, uh, particularly with our, our technology as well as our operational plans and those things, would be something that people would very much want to get their hands on. I would think. Um, yeah. So obviously we have an awful lot of cyber attacks that is the Defense Department we have to deal with every day. So again, with the countries we're working with, we're making sure that – we talk to them about the range of threats and to understand where those threats are. And then finally, just to mention, when we're working with some of these new countries that uh, – some of the countries that are now themselves becoming exporters of technology, one of the areas that I think we're really sharing with them is to make sure that they do the sort of threat analysis that we do when we are looking at various transfers where we are vetting – you know, we're, first off, we're looking to make sure, does this make sense that this technology is the kind of technology that is appropriate for this requirement? So there's first a match at that level. And then we're making sure that the quantity seems to be right. Uh, and then we also make sure that the actual recipients of that technology, uh, that we don't have any concerns about the actual recipients of that technology. And obviously, we use a variety of information to do that. We sure have the benefit of all source intelligence information to make that make those decisions. Uh, and we're trying to encourage the partners that we have in other countries to make sure that they are also involving their intelligence community and helping them to make these right. decisions because they've got to use the best information that they have available. And this would be on the issue of re-export of technologies that are you're, – you're perfectly fine with the country you got it. But where does it go from there? Well, yes, I'm, I'm concerned about it. Yes, I'm, I'm concerned that, first off, I've given it to them for a particular, a particular reason and a particular purpose. And with that, we're comfortable. Um, but then, yes, we would be concerned about them potentially turning it around and, and willingly exporting it to another recipient. Or um, we're also trying to help them to be sensitive to the fact that they could be in a situation where, because another country knows they have received yeah. that technology from the United States – um, that they're going to specifically put efforts to target that technology. Uh, and so we want them to, you know, protect the technology uh, and to make sure that they're not uh, allowing it to go to some place that we wouldn't actually authorize it to go. But really, it's in their interest as well. No. Should we open it up to the sure, floor? that's fine. Please. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Pat Hose with Defense Daily. 
on Pet Hose with Defense Daily. Um, I believe Japan wants to buy fighter jets. Is DOD helping them out with that? And can you talk a little bit about the technologies that you're not comfortable sharing with Japan at this point? Well, when you say fighter jets, are you talking any specific technology? Um, I believe they want to build. They want to have their own fighter jets. Well, they're 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 actually they're actually going to potentially they are they've actually uh, done a selection process where they're going to be a recipient of the Joint Strike Fighter Program, the F thirty five program. So that's okay. the technology. Um, I'm not going to speak specifically about technologies that I wouldn't share with Japan. To be honest with you, I have a lot of confidence in Japan. In fact, one of the reasons that I focused. Uh, on some of the efforts that the Japan is undertaking is the fact that I'm very confident. In fact, the United States shares a variety of advanced technology with Japan. In fact, they're the recipient of many technologies, and the fact that we would um, approve for them something like the Joint Strike Fighter, which is really fifth-generation stealth technology, it shows that we have a level of confidence. What I have really been focusing on with the Japanese is not is not really improving, per se, their systems for receipt of U.S. technology. But as Japan thinks more about potentially becoming an exporter themselves in the future, although, to be honest with you, they have, um, they have put in place some good criteria uh, based upon those original principles that they're not really deviating from because they're going to do an awful lot of thinking about who they sell to. But I'm particularly interested in working with them as they think about expanding that defense industry, that they should think about who it is that they're working with. But in terms of sharing technology with Japan, uh, we have very solid bilateral relationship with Japan. And I can tell you, I don't have any qualm about sharing advanced technology with Japan. Next. And when you do, uh, when you do our call, then please give your name and uh, whatever affiliation you care to you care to disclose. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Mike Pillsbury. My affiliation would be former OSD mm -hmm. official. I don't think this microphone is working. It is, it is. Uh, I don't mean this as a hostile question. You may, <laughs> you may take it that way. Do um, I have to answer it if I think it's hostile? <laughs> it's up to you. Okay. I've been both a friend and enemy of DITSA. Sometimes I've thought, and my colleagues... I do think this is a hostile question, so <laughs> next question. My colleagues and I sometimes have thought that if there's an agency in the U.S. government that's most out to sabotage the president's foreign policy initiatives, it's DITSA. Because DITSA has a way of going in and behaving sort of holier than thou to brand new friends of the United States, not Australia, New Zealand, Japan, but countries that are very concerned about their sovereignty very sensitive about America telling them what to do. And they even see DITSA as an intelligence collection agency, which you and I know is quite wrong. So various times, DITSA has been overruled. But I've often wondered, and I'm hoping you do this, I've often wondered, can't there be a, a school or a piece of paper that you can give to sensitive officials in, who are new friends of the United States that to help your own country these are 27 things we wish you would do, not because DITSA demands it, but because it's in your own interest. And some of the countries recently that have had problems are India, Ukraine, it's a fairly long list, some African countries who know the old Ronald Reagan comment that there are, I think it's 17 words in the English language that are the most frightening in the world. I'm from the U.S. government, and I'm here to help you. 
Is that I'm, 17? I I'm from Ditz. Maybe it's nine. I'm from Ditza, and I'm here to help you. Mm -hmm. So could you clarify that things have improved from the bad old days, and now Ditza has a way of being friendly and overcoming these very sensitive countries who don't like to be told what to do by their new American friend, and they're willing to cancel cooperation that the president offered because of treatment by Ditza? Uh, well, I'm going to take it not as a hostile question, uh, and um, I'm here today because I don't think that is Ditz's reputation any longer, so I'm not quite sure, sir, where you have your information from. Um, I believe that Ditza right now is seen, and I won't say that it's all because of me. Uh, I don't I'm not going to take that much credit. I'm not that egotistical. Um, I believe it's because uh, the, the issues that DITS is working and in terms of the protection of U.S. technology and also encouraging other countries to maintain and protect their technology is really starting to resonate. I mentioned those cooperative technology security programs that we're doing. What we're finding with countries is that we are basically giving them a, as you said, almost a, a sort of some suggestions. It's not, it's not telling them you must do the following things but we are making some suggestions to them relating to the things that we believe they should put in place to ensure that their, the technology that they have in their possession um, can be actually protected. And we, you know, we were just talking a few minutes ago about the various attacks and things that are going on. So there are people out there that are trying to acquire technology. So these cooperative programs, we're doing them with a variety of countries. We've started them with Turkey and Korea. Uh, we have a whole other list of countries that we're doing. I'm very much involved uh, in the defense trade and technology initiative with India. Um, and and we, are, uh, we are making very significant proposals um, about sharing advanced technology with India. And I can tell you I am right involved in that. Obviously, um, the Undersecretary Kendall uh, has been directed by Deputy Secretary Work to be the point person uh, for that initiative. Uh, and we have, we have proposed to the Indians a variety of proposals for cooperation and actually co-production and co-development of technology uh, to support our strategic relationship with India. And I can tell you that myself uh, and my team are intimately involved in the actual decisions about what technology is being shared. And this is not saying no. We are coming up with answers where we can say yes. Now, could you also say that there are four pillars. It strikes uh -huh. me that your four pillars, as you've described, almost becomes a kind of roadmap uh -huh. for countries from a wide spectrum of countries, uh, Japan at one end, let's say, and in Indonesia at the other, uh -huh. by which one could become a trustworthy Absolutely. U.S. defense partner. Absolutely. And so this would be ways in which uh -huh. you could say these. this is the checklist under each pillar which you need to the, if you like, the hurdles that you need to cross in order to be set up for the kind of partner we're looking to do. Well, again, uh, we didn't intend when we laid out those pillars to have them be absolutely, you know, directive and prescriptive. We're, we're trying to make some suggestions in terms of the protection of technology uh, based on our experience. Uh, and, in fact, uh, the first time I actually utilized those pillars uh, in a public speech was actually earlier this year when I spoke in Korea where Korea uh, organized a, a technology security forum. And what was great about that forum was the fact that Korea extended an invitation to a variety of other countries in the region. Uh, we had representation there from Japan, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, the, the full range. And so I laid out those pillars. And it was interesting to me 
again, these are just suggestions. These are things that we have found in our system that work well. Uh, and so, again, we're using those pillars to make suggestions to countries about things that they should consider. But uh, how they decide to implement it within their own country uh, is really their own decision. We've worked very collaboratively, for example, with Korea uh, and made some suggestions about the creation of an organization within the uh, Defense Acquisition Procurement Agency focusing on the protection of technology. The Koreans have decided to take some of the suggestions we've made uh, and they're implementing it. They've stood up an organization and they have a piece of legislation uh, that will be pending later this year before their national go to their national assembly to basically set up an interagency process. So I feel good about that from the standpoint that, again, um, you know, Big Bad Ditsa hasn't been directive about that. It's been a dialogue that I have had with the deputy administrator of DAPA suggesting that these things might be things that they should consider, particularly as Korea has aspirations to become a very uh, a very large exporter of defense technology uh, over the next couple of – basically by 2020, they expect to be a very large exporter of defense technology. Because of our abbreviated schedule, we're going to have time for one more question from the floor. Yep, to the back. Thanks. Hi, I'm Jim Walbarst. I'm with the defense industry. You had mentioned uh, a, a couple thoughts. Uh, about the industry's desire to have greater export markets, which, which I think is certainly true, and also uh, an administration with a foreign policy that's uh, broad and, and maybe welcoming. On, on the contrary side, I would say over the 40 years I've been doing this, I've been noticing a contrary trend, one of which I would call great inflation in the clearance business. I mean, we keep inventing newer and higher levels of clearances to protect information. And it's even seeming to be uh, that we're waiting on the National Archives to talk about new ways to protect unclassified information. So how does this all coexist if, if we're, uh, particularly in the post-Snowden era, where uh, all the agencies with whom we work in the U.S. government are asking us to be more restrictive and tighter, uh, and, and I'm sure that impacts what goes through your shop, how do we both uh, keep our arms more closely around uh, various types of technologies, various technologies, and again, even unclassified information, and at the same time, share more and support American business uh, around the world. So can I just clarify your question because I'm having a little bit of trouble. I'm, I'm sorry, I was listening intently. I guess I'm, I'm getting a little deafer as I get older. So just make sure I understand. So you're suggesting that what you're seeing is – additional restrictions by the U.S. government on unclassified information, but is it controlled? It's con controlled but unclassified? I just want to clarify the comment. Yes. I mean, there are, there are more and more restrictions coming to us on unclassified information and even on the uh, systems that, that manage unclassified information. We're waiting on specific uh, directions from the Pentagon on exactly what has to be done there to upgrade security. So I'm just thinking that that potentially puts right, well, a, new, I'll, I'll, a new level of review. I'll give it a shot, but I got to tell you, it's a little bit outside because it sounds like these these because when we talk about the the protection of controlled unclassified information uh, in the Department of Defense, that's a responsibility of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. So it's not it's not directly in my job jar. That's the, kind of the first thing. So uh, just a couple of observations. So the first thing is. I think some of the things that I've, that I've spoken about today in the sense of 
working with other countries in terms of the thinking about how to um, put in place the right kind of policies, processes, and procedures to protect technology can be applicable to information itself. So that's the first thing. So the first thing is while we are we want to share technology, we're going to want to make sure that we tear technology and information. And when we do so with other countries, that those countries would be protecting it in a similar information. In in I have not I briefly alluded in my remarks a little bit about what we're doing in export control reform. And so one of the things that I think is also potentially going to help, because you said you're from the defense industry, didn't name the company, but you're from the defense industry, so I don't know what technology area you're in. You know, one of the things that we're doing in terms of that review is making some clear decisions about what type of technology, as we go through the review of the U.S. munitions list, we're making very conscious decisions about what technology must remain under the jurisdiction of the Department of State with those very uh, stringent requirements and controls. But as we move things over to the commerce list, we're making that. So we're kind of making distinctions as we go through this process in terms of some technology that is incredibly sensitive that really requires that individual case-by-case review and things that can go over to the Commerce Department. So that would help a little bit. But some of the broader issues, which I think you're getting at more in terms of potentially uh, controls or limitations that are being placed really on information technology systems, that's really coming out from the Department of Defense um, Chief Information Officer as well as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and then candidly being driven interagency um, from the White House because of the significant cyber attacks on the United States and United States industry and government. But I'm, I'm probably a little bit out of my lane, so that was the best I can do with a um, probably, and I probably just should have said I don't know, but I'm, I'm never, I never do that. So that was my best attempt to give you an answer. So thanks. Well, I think one of the things we've discovered is there's really not a lot that Beth McCormick doesn't know <laughs> about export control and defense technologies. Uh, and what uh, Beth McCormick doesn't know isn't knowledge. Um, thank you very much. Please give a thank you to our distinguished guests. And uh, thank you for your patience and for joining us and uh, being part of, a, part of an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, for the Hudson Institute, thank you very much.